Hello and welcome to Contemplations and today we're going to be understanding Europe and I'm here with our own resident continental European, Stelios. Hello, uh, nice to be here Josh. That's all right and uh, of course I'm Josh. I did try and wrangle Callum in because of course he's known for his adventures abroad but uh, apparently he's not able to at the minute, he's very busy. Um, so we're going to have to continue without him and have some fun. So the idea is for this one really, it's, it's not going to be, you know, this a really cutting edge political analysis necessarily, but it is going to be an attempt to understand the cultural differences between European countries, as well as, um, you know, this is particularly for people outside of Europe, although there will be stuff in here that many Europeans won't be aware of. But also if you are European, like us, it will give you opportunity to insult your neighbours, which is one of my favourite pastimes, being next to France, of course. So it's one of those things where I think it's very important to uh, to know your sort of surroundings, the countries around you, and particularly the countries that are, are, are draining you of money and passing migrants over to you in, in some cases. I think we're both well-traveled, mm -hmm. especially in Europe, and we have a good idea of the differences between uh, several European countries. Mm -hmm. I think you've been to a fair few countries that I haven't been to. I've been around a lot of the sort of Mediterranean, um, I've been sort of through the Adriatic, I've been to, to Greece, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. Um, I think so. <laughs> Turkey. Um, I was recently in the Czech Republic, but I've, the only places I haven't really been to are Scandinavia and parts of Eastern Europe, really. But they're on my to-go to list. I think my next place I want to go to is Estonia, yeah, particularly I've, in the I've winter. I've heard really good things about it. Mm -hmm. I've but, heard especially about Tallinn, that it yeah, is a I, wonderful city and it is very, very, very developed. Mm. I was thinking about going there in the winter when it's covered in snow because it looks beautiful. But as you can see, this is a, a map of Europe. Um, you should have been able, been able to figure that out by now. Yes, but I want to say that I disagree with this map. Oh, yeah. And I think that this is a good way to start by showing in how we conceive of maps because mm -hmm. you could say that maps are to an extent political. They are trying to make statements. And this map actually does make mm -hmm. a statement. Oh yeah. Now you see this country in the north of Greece. There are three countries in the north: mm -hmm. Albania, Bulgaria, and the, another country in the middle. Now it is called North Macedonia. Mm -hmm. Before it, it was called former Yugoslavic Republic Republic of Macedonia. This map says it makes it. Um, it says it's Macedonia, and I think that this is you know this is completely mistaken. Mm -hmm. Not only is it legally wrong. But also it makes a statement that uh, there is no continuity, historical continuity between Greece and Macedonia, and there and there is. Okay? Yeah, well, Macedonia so, is not there, yeah, historically. So that's one thing about maps, <laughs> that uh, they frequently present themselves as neutral, but actually they are taking positions in especially naming disputes. Yes, and I, I've pretty much brought this up just because it's a nice, clear and simple way to see different countries roughly where they are. You, you see they haven't got the parts of northern France that belong to Great Britain um, on there either. So Brittany, for example, I mean, it's That's literally in the na name. naming dispute, isn't it? Well, in that it used to be British. I mean, yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not here to dispute territory necessarily. Okay. But um, one way of understanding Europe, which I think is very helpful, is the European languages, because obviously there are lots of different countries here and you can sort of 
understand how people from outside of Europe would be like, well, you know, they've got this European Union. Why don't they all just form one big country? And um, although that's kind of a silly thing to say and we're not stupid commies, um, here's a, a pretty good reason why there is this division. And it is here. This is a language map of all of Europe. And as you can see, Portugal speaks Portuguese, Spain, Spanish, France, French, Italy, Italian, um, England, English. Um, and you see the sort of Germanic areas and you can see that the countries make sense based on the languages yes. spoken, the cultures there. Yeah. And so they each contain their sort of own individual culture as it will. And so I think actually looking at these, it's almost like a culture map because of course language determines who you can communicate with and who you have a shared culture with. I must say, I learned something new right now. Okay. And this is what is lovely about contemplations. What is this commie? Commie? Yeah. Oh, in, in Russia. Yeah. I think it might be like an indigenous language. Like Russia's actually got loads of different yes. uh, languages and cultures and ethnicities. It's actually, uh, funnily enough, the most diverse country yeah. um, in Europe. But it's commie in a, with, it's written K-O-M-I. Yeah. It's not- it's Bunch of commies in, in Russia, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I, I was quite surprised actually, because you have things like Kalmyk in Kalmykia in, in Russia as well. And of course you can see sort of in, in Georgia, all of the different languages around there. And you can see why there have been border disputes and it starts to make sense. There's also, if you look at Bulgaria, there's some Turkish slipping in there because of course the Ottomans famously invaded Europe, yeah. took things that didn't belong to them, did they? Well, they reached uh, Vienna uh, in 1683. Mm -hmm. That's where their expansion in Europe uh, stopped. But and, so, uh, rightfully of, course, so. of course, there were there are areas in Europe, especially the southeast, mm -hmm. that did have an, uh, an Ottoman influence, especially in the, as you say, Bulgaria, the former Yugoslavia, mm -hmm. these countries. Yeah. Yeah. So talking about languages, I thought I would uh, do it a bit of bragging already. And here we have percentage of monolingual people and this is from 2016, this is mo the most recent data. And here you can see Britain, of course, very few. And uh, I, I quite like that. We don't have to learn other people's languages, everyone learns our language. But no, I, I actually do believe that if you go to another country, it's actually quite important to learn their language. It's like being a house guest and respecting the rules. Yeah. Uh, when you go abroad, you at least make an effort. And I, I find that I at least want to know sort of perfunctory words in another language, but I'm certainly not uh, bilingual in any sense. I think okay. the closest language I can kind of hold a conversation in is French, whereas yourself, obviously, you're very bilingual in that, you know, you do all of your speaking in English, even yes. though it's not your first language. You haven't heard me speaking Greek. I have heard you speak in Greek, actually. I didn't know that. We, yes. we went to a Greek restaurant together. You were speaking Greek to the, the, yes, the Greek yes, people. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it I, was and very I, strange, actually, because I felt really yeah. left out. And I How could say, you do that? I know me? a bit of German, mm -hmm. a, very, a bit of German, and I could converse in Spanish with uh, my Spanish friends. Mm -hmm. But uh, when we, you know, we we haven't seen each other for a while, and I lost it. Mm -hmm. I think Spanish is a really interesting language, and it's easy to learn, and uh, you know, it's. Mm. I've been to Spain quite a lot and I, I do know some sort of Spanish that can get me by, but it's quite yeah. easy to forget it. That's the problem. Yes. But as you can see here, um, there are lots of countries that are quite 
um, bilingual, the Scandinavian countries in particular, um, I think learn English in school and tend to be very good at English. Many people I've met from Scandinavia speak better English than many English people, in fact. And um, I also want to have a shout out to uh, the Netherlands, who can quite often speak English without much of an accent as well, which is quite impressive. The Swiss as well, right in the centre of Europe, um, quite good at speaking multiple languages. I imagine that's probably being on the border with France, Italy and Germany. They're sort of intersecting with lots of countries, so it makes sense that they're... Yeah. Sorry, is this a sort of um, European expansionist map? Because last time I checked, Tunisia is in, in Africa. I know, I don't know why it's included, <laughs> yeah. but um, <laughs> supposedly they're about you know, comparable maybe to the Italians. Carthage was there, and it's after the yeah. Punic Wars. So. <laughs> the Punic Wars of 2016, yes. Yeah. But as you can see, Eastern Europe is about as bad as Britain. The Irish are slightly better, but that's probably because they can speak Irish. Um, the Scots more or less have forgotten uh, your sort of Gaelic Scots in the first place. And I think there are a few people that do so. Um, Notably, the Spanish there, not particularly good, despite their hatred of Britain for going over there and speaking English. I mean, they're on the worse end. They're almost as bad as us Brits um, for not speaking a language comparable to the Irish, um, which uh, quite often go there and get mistaken for Brits as well. But um, I, I thought this was quite interesting as well, because if you're, say, a tourist from yeah. the Anglosphere outside of Europe, the countries in green may well have a, you know, a better time if you don't know their language because they're probably going to speak English. This normally means English. Although I, I was in um, Czech Republic recently and pretty much everyone I spoke to spoke English. Yeah. The only person that didn't speak any English was a Ukrainian homeless guy that came up to me asking for change. And then he offered to share a beer, which was kind of wholesome, even though he was a homeless guy. So I was just like, I'm okay, thanks. Okay. <laughs> but there we go. So moving on to the next one, this is a topographic map, of course. And uh, as you can see, Southern Europe, quite mountainous. You can see Northern Europe, sort of that band of Northern France, um, Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, quite flat, and Southern Britain. So a lot of these countries are defined by their mountains, particularly yeah. Italy and Greece. Um, Greece obviously, is... you've got... Switzerland as well. Yeah. Greece is 80% mountainous region. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's we didn't have very many fields. And that, that is why in antiquity, um, Greek city-states could not sustain a, a large population. And uh, a lot of them, they tried to make other colonies, you know, around the Mediterranean. Because there, there wasn't enough uh, food to sustain a big number of population. Yeah, and you can certainly see that here, can't you? Like the, the there's kind of a tiny little patch of green there if you can just about squint and see it. Um yeah, by, by the way, if you're listening, um probably best not to. It's probably best to watch this one because it's all going to be visual. Although I'll do my <laughs> best to explain everything. Yeah. I probably should have clarified that first, but it should be pretty intuitive that yes, this is going to be going through lots of visual things, lots of maps. So you will be looking at stuff. But if you are listening and you know Europe well, you'll probably know the countries we're referring to. And so you might be able to just about get away with it. But yes, of course, you can see Norway there um, living up to their reputation amongst the Scandinavians as being uh, mountain people, particularly. Lots of mountains there. Um, this is just more 
what shapes the culture more than anything, because I did have a recent contemplations with Bo, yes. where we talked about how geography um, could have an influence on a country's success. And certainly, you know, not having very much farmland is a limitation in a, a limited sense, but you can get around it. I mean, yeah. And w one thing that I really like talking about is the idea that mountains can function like natural barriers mm -hmm. and that they are much easier to defend yourself uh, than in, on a plain field. So, for instance, if you have a small population, you can defend your, your let's say, ground much better in a mountainous region that you know of against an yes. enemy that, you know, that um, has more people but uh, doesn't know the area. It's easier to defend yourself. And that's why Montesquieu says that freedom is the, the product of the mountain. <laughs> as, as a non-mountain dweller myself, an appreciator of freedom, I don't know whether mountains are necessarily essential for freedom, but... But you could always live and go on the mountain and li live like a bandit and, and you would be free and... <laughs> would be easier that than you just walking around in a plain field. Mm -hmm. that, that's you not wrong, hide. to be fair. Yeah. But of course, you've got the, the Greek experience in World War II against the Italians. And of course, the Italians weren't known for their military prowess in World War II. I mean, yeah. they lost to Ethiopia. I mean, come on, man, to quote Joe Biden. Um, so yes, it seems to be important, particularly, I think, for Switzerland's neutrality as well. The fact they're surrounded by mountains allows them to be neutral and isolated from the goings-on of the world. I think had they not had that geography, they may well have been more involved in the two world wars yeah. rather than just being the financier or the sort of bankers that made a lot of Nazi gold profit, I imagine. Yeah. But I thought it, I'd mention it. It's, it's kind of a bit um, perfunctory and a bit boring. So it's going to be a bit more interesting soon, don't worry. And one more thing is the population density. And of course, you can see here sort of northwestern Europe is particularly population dense. Obviously, you have Rome there in black in Italy, Paris. Um, you've got parts of the Netherlands, which um, is the most population dense country in Europe. And then you start looking at sort of parts of Greece, parts of Spain, um, parts of Bulgaria in particular. And you, you see that there's a lot of uh, empty space. Yeah. There is some in central France as well. And you've got this sort of, they call it a sort of population banana where um, a, a decent amount of Europe's population lives in the uh, sort of the, the banana shape between London down to sort of central Europe yeah. in, in that sort of area. And I think that is partly due to favorable climate among other things as well. But And it has to do with the model uh, that uh, the developmental model that a uh, country chooses. That's whether, very true, yeah. Whether everything is going to be um, based on two or three big cities or not. Mm -hmm. I think Germany is considered to be a country that, is, that has a relatively uh, proportionate dissemination of population across its regions. Yeah, and you can kind of see that there because there's no stark... Um, obvious area where Germany's borders begin and end, which uh, is slightly concerning uh, if you're up on your 20th century history. But this is only a population density map, so you don't need to be worried quite yet. But yeah, yeah you can certainly see that, can't you? And then, of course, Scandinavia, you've got um, very concentrated populations around the major cities, really. 
Um, of course, you look at Norway, parts of Sweden, they're basically empty, like parts of Scotland and Ireland there. Of course, Ireland being one of the least dense parts of the British Isles. So yes, we've got all of that out of the way, and now for something even more boring, and that is uh, GDP per, um, how, how is it pronounced again? GDP purchasing power standard per capita, and this is from 2019, and this is the best way to basically have a metric of the ease of living in a certain area, I would say. So as you can see, Switzerland really stands out. Iceland's doing pretty well. Southern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland that is, um, looks pretty good. Parts of London, um, are okay. Germany in particular stands out here. And uh, you have some parts that look a little bit red, like Southern Italy. You can see the difference between Northern and Southern Italy in terms of development yeah. quite starkly here, as well as um, the sort of Balkan countries and around there. Not nearly as easy to live here. And of course, this adjustment, these metrics, I think are one of the best ways to to figure out how well people have it, really. Yes, and uh, I think that, okay, you know, the degree of statist economy plays a role. Mm -hmm. so for instance, in Greece, right now, things are much worse than they were, let's say, 15 years ago. And so this, reflect, this uh, data is taken from 2019. So this definitely reflects the crisis we had for the last 10 mm -hmm. years. I thought yeah. this was particularly useful because it's pre-pandemic and because different countries yes. had different pandemic policies and they left, yes. you know, the policies differently, yes. it wouldn't necessarily be a fair representation yeah. of the sort of mean in which they would default uh, to. No, but uh, it's a statement that, you know, statism kills your economy. Well, it's like you've and almost guessed this next uh, map, which is this one. This is, I'm not entirely sure how this is... Uh, calculated, but this is a, a map of economic freedom. And uh, Britain and Switzerland are leading the way. I think we're um, in Britain a little bit less communistic than the rest of the continent. But this is, I, I presume, to be a, a map of how easy it is to manoeuvre in the economy. How easy is it to have a, you know, a business, yeah. for example. And Britain and Ireland are doing very well. Germany seems to do reasonably well and many sort of central European countries, France and Italy, not so much. Well, let me say one thing, because I, I know you are into the business of criticizing statism, and you know, this is... Oh, yeah. We, we are in complete agreement with this. Uh, in Greece, it was not so much an issue of having businesses, but the problem was that the state was so large that a lot of private businesses had the state as their main client. So when the state went, you know, unofficially, but substantially bankrupt, they went bankrupt as well. Yeah, so I think that that's something that is certainly very important in Europe. Like because putting we putting all your eggs on one basket. Mm -hmm. Because I think what um, Americans might forget is that the size of our governments are much larger than yours. You may complain about government overreach and all of this stuff, which obviously I'm very sympathetic towards, and I agree with your, your arguments there, but our governments are much larger than the American one. And uh, I think that the effects of that here I mean, Britain, for all our whinging about it, is still better in this respect than a lot of other countries. So, more economic stuff. And this is hours worked per year um, per worker, I believe. And this I thought was quite interesting because there's not as necessarily as clear a pattern as there was before. So this is just how many hours you work a year. Germany works the least. 
presumably because they're all engineers and stuff and they you know get high wages for very little hours worked they're very efficient people and so they don't need to work as much whereas uh, the irish known for uh, stereotypically for fighting one another um not not so much apparently they they seemingly i think it's actually more to do with stereotypes aside they don't have particularly strong laws to do with working hours and they're more willing to allow companies to expect large unhealthy working hours of their population and i think that that's part of the reason um why that is and i think that's all part of them trying to attract businesses because they've been uh, they've kind of gained a bit of a reputation for being a business hub because they are friendly to businesses more so than lots of the rest of europe yeah. and they've got some special privileges for them that's why you get um, large multinational corporations setting up their headquarters in ireland for europe is that they basically give them a deal because they want people to be able to work there i, I want to speak for the european north uh, south a bit there is this uh, wrong idea that people in the european south don't work at don't work a lot mm -hmm. i think this uh, chart says the exact opposite yes if anything i think yeah. um from what i was getting from the data was that Lots of people have small businesses in the sort of southern European part, and therefore they're working for themselves, but because they're their own boss, they're working much longer hours. And it is not just this. For instance, um, in, let's say, Greece in the last uh, 10-15 years, mm -hmm. there have been people who are uh, working two or three jobs. So it's not that, in the, that you know, Greeks are lazy. There are some mm -hmm. Greeks that are lazy, some. A mm -hmm. lot of these lazy people, they are, let's say, uh, living off uh, everyone else and they br bring the average down. And it is because the, let's say, the, the Greeks were not really fast to understand how to structure an economy. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we basically prolonged the economic crisis because we didn't want to cut the benefits of many of these people. So it's not an issue so much of how much you work, but of how efficiently you work. And to work efficiently, mm -hmm. you need to have good structures. If you had bad, if you have bad structures, you you can work a long a lot of long hours. It won't do you any good. Mm -hmm. And I think this largely and I think is that's the problem of mm -hmm. the European South. It's not that there are people who don't work; they work. You could say more than mo most other Europeans, at least, mm -hmm. you know, in the... Certainly uh, the Eastern Europeans seem to work a lot as well. Yes, but they, they work a lot. But the problem is that they work within structures that are completely inefficient. Mm -hmm. And I think this is actually a good map of economic efficiency in a way, because, you know, the Germans have earned their stereotype of caring a lot about efficiency here. And I think it shows in this map quite well. Same with uh, the Danes, of course, nearby. And... France and Britain as well. And you, you can see that Scandinavians too, you know, they, they seem to have things worked out to a certain extent. Whereas say Spain, Italy, um, Portugal, Greece. Yeah, Romania, Poland, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the Czech Republic, mm -hmm. Croatia. It's, it's interesting because the, the Czech Republic there in red next to Germany and Austria, you would think that, you know, that they've got somewhat Germanic culture, haven't they? They've got that integration, but they're also Slavic. So they've seems like they've sided more on the Slavic side in this sense, in that they're more similar to Poland than they are to Germany. Um, and I, I thought that was interesting because it sees, you if you were to go there, you see the influence of both Eastern Europe and, and Central Europe on them. 
and and yet you can see in this measure in particular they're far more Eastern European than not. Yeah. So slightly less serious economic indices here. Uh, the price of a Big Mac at McDonald's in US dollars as of January 2022, and this is my my sole metric for an economy. Really, this is all, <laughs> this is all I live off of. Not really. Um, but I thought this was interesting because it kind of shows you uh, a sort of measure of uh, another good. measure of cost of living to a certain extent, because it also shows, because what actually goes into a Big Mac is, is like cost of um, the actual raw materials, yeah. um, all of the processed food that you've got to put in, in there, as well as the, the strength of the economy to actually buy lots of fast food in the first place. And so places like Switzerland, you know, it's going to look very good in this, but also it's worth mentioning that their cost of things is high, but their wages are high and their standard yes. of living is high as well. There's a difference between nominal wages and real wages. Yes. Uh, real and I think, wages um, have to do with purchasing mm -hmm. power. I think this would be quite a good sort of metric for, say, tourists, for yeah. example. It shows you quite well the countries that are expensive to visit, if you will. Um, sort of Norway in particular is known for being quite expensive for foreigners. Same with Switzerland. And you could go to Eastern Europe, for example, you can see uh, Ukraine and Romania very cheap on the Big Mac indices. So uh, if someone from the US wanted to go to France and buy a Royale with cheese, <laughs> how much would it cost? Well, it what does it say? 4.5 to 4.9 yeah. US dollars. I which... really hope you get the reference. I've made other Pulp Fiction references, but you haven't got them. <laughs> yeah, up your game, audience. Stelios yeah. is disappointed. Look at him. He's, he's, he's absolutely distraught with that big smile on his face. But um, speaking of tourism, let's have a look at the, the tourism share of, uh, as a share of GDP, sorry. And this is particularly important because there are some very specific countries that are very dependent on tourism that don't always get it. And they particularly suffered during lockdowns. I thought it'd be good to break this down because, of course, Germany, uh, Scandinavia, Britain, France, um, surprisingly Italy as well, not as dependent. Um, these are more sort of industry, business, service-focused economies, whereas you have your Spains, your Portugals, um, I think Croatia there's basically a dark green. Um, you've got Greece there, Albania for some reason. Is that, that can be right. Is that people trafficking or something? I, I, I don't know, but it seems in Greece, 9-10%, that's really low. Yeah, it, it seems like quite a low amount, doesn't it? Yeah. But... Um, it, it, you at least see the difference between Europe here. Like lots of the Mediterranean countries in particular are very dependent on tourism. And when, particularly in Britain, we use the excuse of when we annoy the Spanish, which we certainly do, um, going on holiday there, it's like, well, we pay for your, you know, we pay your bills in a certain sense. This sort of entitled um, British tourist attitude, which we'll be getting onto later, don't you worry. Is it in Ibiza? Oh yeah, the, the sort of, yeah. Um, the Spanish islands and the Greek islands, we plague them like locusts and yeah, we are right, rightfully hated for it. Don't worry. There's n Our own tourists are much to be despised, I think. And it's okay to do it. I mean, It's fun, but when, when I hear people saying that they, they've been to Greece, first question, was it Laganas? 
nine out of ten say yes. So you know, Cause, you, yeah. that's the place to go if you want uh, a debaucherous weekend or so or a week. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is part of the reason that these sort of countries do well. It's like a sunny weekend of of boozing and degeneracy yeah. for many Northern Europeans that haven't seen the sunlight in years. And you'll see these pink figures with Manchester United shirts on, shuffling down the high street like a zombie, clutching a can of Stella, looking like they've, uh, you know, scarcely evolved from millions of years ago. <laughs> and that, that that is just a sight you're going to have to put up with if you go to certain places. Benidorm is another good example of that in, in southern Spain. I, I tend to avoid touristy areas because I find tourists annoying, even though I am one when I'm abroad. Yeah. But I at least try and, you know, adopt you know the better. local you know customs. I do, yes. Yeah. Like, um, even when I was a child and I'd go to like France or Spain, I'd deliberately learn the language before I went so I can have a, a brief back and forth with people. And people really, really appreciate it as well. Like you make an effort to take part in their culture and they'll love it. Like uh, when I was on holiday recently, I, I was making an effort to learn um, Czech words. Yeah. And like I, I'd ask the waitress, oh, I'd say something in Czech. And then I'd say, oh, how do, how do I read this out? And then they'd say it to me and then I'd repeat it back. And it'd be, it'd be fun. Like yeah. they actually smile and, you know, you find that you have a nicer experience doing that. So don't be afraid to do it. If you get it wrong and make a fool of yourself, which I like doing anyway, yeah. because it's funny. Um, it's not the end of the world. And actually it warms people to you. Don't, don't be fooled by, you know, what progressives in America say that if you, you know, you try and take part in someone's culture and you get it wrong, they're going to be annoyed at you or say you're ignorant. Most of the time people are, are just like, oh, that's really nice and wholesome. It's like if I saw someone in Britain dress up in like a red coat, like sort of our, our 19th century military uniform, I'd be like, you, sir, are a legend. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah. come and have a cup of tea or something like that. So that is the point I wanted to make. And here we have biggest trading partners here. And I thought this was interesting because I believe that this is from IMF figures from 2022. So this is still sort of tail end of COVID. Notice that um, the British Isles and Germany mainly trade with the US and most other countries trade with Germany. <laughs> Um, Norway over there, I think, trades with Great Britain. Well done to you. Mm. Um, Spain with France. Um, Portugal with Spain. I mean, a lot of these are just unsurprising based on the convenience of geography, really. Um, like Greece mainly trades with Italy, which, of course, very easy to ship goods across. But it's, it's a sea of Germany, really, on the continent. I mean, this is a bit dystopian for, for me seeing all these German flags over European countries, but uh, alas, they are an industrious folk and they are efficient. They have a lot to export, lots of raw materials. I think they're very good in their chemical industry and their um, engineering, aren't they? Yeah. So that makes sense, of and, course. And uh, we must say, in order to introduce the historical aspect of it, that after World War II, Germany did not have, sustain an army. Mm -hmm. And whereas many other countries, they did, and also uh, a substantial amount of their GDP to their defense, military defenses, Germany did not. And also Germany made the, I would say, let's say made the move of basing uh, its economy on free natural gas. 
And now that um, they don't have this inflow of natural gas, their economy has taken a very big hit. Thank you for watching that clip from my series Contemplations. If you want to sign up to the website for £5 a month, you can access that series, which comes out 1pm every Saturday. Thank you for watching and goodbye.